A Thoughtful Faith podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. We are your hosts. I'm Mark Rigo. And I'm Gina Colvin. Our purpose at A Thoughtful Faith is to provide support for Mormons who want to stay engaged with their religion, yet are struggling to find conversations that support their faith transitions. While we seek to honor the beauty of the LDS faith, we also understand that discipleship doesn't necessarily mean uniformity and agreement. Hence, we make room here for all of those who are constructing or reconstructing a thoughtful faith journey. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go toward keeping the podcasts alive and building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello everyone, this is Dan Witherspoon. Many of you will know me as the host of the Mormon Matters podcast, but here I am over at A Thoughtful Faith for a minute. I'm here because one of my roles is as a board member of the Open Stories Foundation. The Open Stories Foundation is the umbrella group that oversees and owns and has the 501c3 status so that uh, donations made to podcasts are tax-deductible. But anyway, it oversees Mormon Stories, which is hosted by John DeLynn, Mine, Mormon Matters, Mormon Mental Health, which is hosted by Natasha Helfer-Parker, Gay Mormon Stories, which is hosted by Daniel Parkinson, and A Thoughtful Faith. And of course, that's the podcast that we're on today. I'm here with Gina Colvin and Mark Krigo, who are going to oversee and be the main movers behind a relaunch of the A Thoughtful Faith podcast. It has had a nice, good run. It served lots of different uh, purposes under the leadership of Micah Nicolaisen and Sarah Collette. And Sarah Collette is going to continue to produce interviews and things for it as well. But Mark and Gina are going to be the new energy behind it, and we thought it would be great as we relaunch the podcast to have everybody have a chance to get to know them, kind of a little bit about their backgrounds, who they are, where they are with the church, and just their faith journeys, as well as what their hopes and dreams are, what's the big goals for a thoughtful faith going forward. So that's what we're going to try to do today. Now, of the two of you, Gina, you're a bit more well-known, at least to the Mormon Matters audiences and because of your blog, Kiwi Mormon, and all those kinds of good things. I am going to go ahead and have everybody get to know Mark first. So, Mark, one of the things that people might be good to know up front before we kind of learn a little bit more about your background is that you, along with Geraldine Renshaw and me... We're the moderators of a Facebook group called a Thoughtful Faith Support Group. And you and Gina, uh, you and Gerald Lee have been doing that much longer than me. You guys folded me in a few months ago, and I really enjoyed working with you. So Mark already has had a very important role to play in uh, kind of shaping up that group. It's a group that we have, we I don't know, Mark, would you say we just have a little higher barrier of who we accept because we're uh, we're really trying to not be like a typical face group that can kind of get overrun by by some of the voices that are a little bit more strident on the everybody should leave front. Right. I think uh, a thoughtful faith is a, a wonderful place. It's very close to stay LDS uh, in terms of its mission. And its mission is to find and navigate a thoughtful faith within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, if that's what you choose to do. Right. So with that in mind, we keep that mission fairly close to you know people who are 
a Mormons that have that have some degree of interest in staying in the church and yet have been going through a faith crisis, and that's our constituency. All right, yeah, it, it's good, and and to me, it's one of the 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 nicer Facebook groups out there because of that uh, extra moderation that we do, and we try to also discourage people from just posting about day to day life and all the kinds of other things that can kind of fill feeds. So, it's a great thing. So, Mark, you were a natural to have uh, John DeLynn kind of tap on the shoulder as somebody he would like to uh, see if you'd like to take some ownership of the podcast. So, if you don't mind, why don't you tell us where you grew up? Uh, your kind of your journey within Mormonism, and uh, I'll just interrupt you, and Gina can interrupt you with uh, with some questions along the way. I started from a family that was actually uh, from my mother's side, uh, legacy LDS, all the way back to the times of polygamy and the Danish immigration into Utah. And I think my great grandfather uh, Niels Peter Anderson was uh, was recruited by the church in uh, in Denmark, came to be the tailor of the general authorities, and left his wife back in Denmark with my grandmother. And uh, then he started marrying new wives in 1888, and uh, and after the uh, after the manifesto, he married five more, and so we have some history in the church. And I think my grandmother and her mother were not interested in in, in really staying with the the main tribe in Utah. So my grandmother eventually migrated to Chicago, and we became part of the Eastern Mormons that sort of like, you know, stayed away stayed from the behind yeah. all the polygamy and everything else like that. Well, we. We didn't stay behind. We we came back. Oh, you came and then you went back. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So that that puts a frame around a little bit of my belief. My mother grew up in Chicago, and she met a wonderful man from Chicago. She had a, a car accident when she was younger, and so she was handicapped a bit. And and and, and her father was the branch president in uh, Hyde Park in Chicago and built a chapel there. It was very prominent in the church until. The depression hit, and he was heavily speculated, and they lived a very, very poor existence. After that, he turned to alcoholism and died from it. And so we had a; she had a tough time. My father was not a member of the church. She, she, uh, and her older brother was, uh, and my father were good friends, and they eventually married. And the difference, I think, is he he joined the church as a pragmatist when my oldest sister became eight years old. And I say this from background because his view of the church and his view all the way through his life, and he's 95 today, still alive, and he's been a bishop. He's been through every calling in the church except stake president, I think. But he's a very practical man, and he's a, I would call him a very practical believer. Both my mom had her daily cup of tea and my dad had his daily cup of coffee, but it was sort of like that's what they did. And, and the bishop... It was if the Bishop Uncle Marvin could have his cup of tea, so could she. So we didn't grow up in the in the pure believing type. My mother didn't want me to go to primary because it was too much of a bother during the week. But we, so we stayed, you know, nominally active, and we had a good family life. Our definition of family home evening was watching Bonanza on Sunday night. And what was really cool about that is that we were we we lived the church according to our standards and our way of living. It wasn't until I eventually had a choice from my parents: either you're going to go to BYU or you're going to stay home here and go to UWM, University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. And I said, ah, no, I'm I'm checking out of here. I'm going out to BYU. And and so when I had gone out to BYU at that point in time, I you know I I was pretty. Pretty much like any typical teenager in Wisconsin, the definition of a party was a keg of beer. And, you know, as I've grown up and had children myself, and my, my youngest had a few drinking problems, she said, but dad, you did this. And I said, no, but I didn't get caught. So I don't know if I was always the best parent, but it was that background. And I say that 
because my background may not be your typical Utah Mormon. I didn't grow up with this incredible pressure right. to right. go on a mission, to, to be part of the church. And in fact, when it, after two years of, uh, after my first year at BYU, when I, when my first roommate brought his year supply from Chicago in two shoeboxes, and in 1973, that included a lot of very exotic drugs. Oh, uh, man. I had exposure to a different side of BYU than I think most people did because the people I hung out with did a lot of drinking and did a lot of partying and 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 I went up to and I thought I was going to try to get um, you know religious and I did. In fact, I I made a commitment that by the time I was going to turn 18 years old, which was that first semester, I was going to finally read the Book of Mormon, which I before in my life I had you know lied about it and that, you know had gone to seminary at least the home study seminary. And, and, and I decided to read the Book of Mormon, and I started one Saturday morning, and I finished it Sunday about noon. And as I'm reading in 3rd Nephi, the light is coming into the room, you know, from the, from the dawn, and I'm reading, you know, 3rd Nephi 17 and all these wonderful stories that really touched my heart. And I had the beginning of a testimony, and I thought, well, I've really got really to learn about this religion. And so the next weekend was the first general conference I could ever attend because back in the mission field in those days, you didn't get any general conference on the radio or television. So I rode my bicycle up from BYU to, uh, to, um, to Salt Lake, and I attended all seven sessions of conference. Now, here's the interesting thing. I had no place to stay, so I hung out, tried to figure out a place to stay, and I was heading up to the University of Utah to sleep on the golf course. And I stopped by, I saw a fairly attractive young lady who was hitchhiking, and I said, you know, I started talking to her, and she said, well, you want to stay with my old man tonight? It turned out that they were they were uh, drug peddlers in, in the middle of Salt Lake, and and there they were, you know, dividing up a couple kilos of marijuana, and I and I smoked some, and I, you know, it was it was just part of what I did at that time. So my exposure to Mormonism, I guess, was a little different because those were all Mormons too. But I attended every session of General Conference. I think that was one of those conferences where Elder Packer, you know, may have done his one of his, uh, I think, sing a song sort of talks, you know, and I was enthralled with it. But I went to every session. And I came back and I started this whole process of, yeah, Bishop, I, I, I smoked some marijuana up there. I started feeling like, you know, because you go to BYU and you have to confess everything. And I started developing this sense of guilt for everything that I was doing. And, um, you know, and, and, and I didn't have a good year my first year. It was very, very troubled, as a matter of fact. And so I ended up working for a fact, in a factory for a year. And I started staving up some money, and I played some guitar, and I was thinking about buying a Martin D35 guitar, and I was walking down the street, and I heard this voice, as distinctly as I'm talking today, say, if you're going to go on a mission, you're going to need this money. I had the money for a beautiful Martin D35 guitar, mm -hmm. and I went and I asked for my, you know, my you know, down payment back, and I went on a mission. But I felt wow. to go on a mission. I felt... And, and because I felt called, I had a very different attitude, I think, than a lot of missionaries. I, I just wanted to be there. I went to Chile, and I, and I just had a great time. It wasn't an orthodox time. I had a lot of troubles with, you know, companions, the normal things that happen. And my worst time during the mission was the month we baptized, the mission record of 20 baptisms, and they didn't stay active more than a month after that. So I started formulating sort of my view of, of the church, and it was... I had an experience on my mission where we were teaching somebody who was Asian in their orientation, and uh, and they knew a lot about Asian philosophy, and they had a couple of those uh, you know those swords that uh, you know samurai swords katana, 
And, uh, and, you know, the guy wanted me to understand that there was a very, very different point of view about Asian philosophy and religion than, than you, you Mormons understand. It was a very, I, I remember that, that night very, very well. It was like, you know, I go out there as a missionary telling people around the world that we have something better and superior. And yet at that moment, I felt very small. I felt very ignorant because their peace and their understanding of how people you know, ought to be, you know, treating each other and everything else like that was so different than what I'd grown up with. Everything in a mission is about getting people to convert it. And I think what happened to me is I started learning that there's a bigger world out there. Later in life, you know, I, I, I did everything right. And I, you know, I did the come home, get married in the temple. And, and, and as I went into life and I got married and, and I had five, and I still have five really beautiful daughters. And I, I went through a period of time just where that some old habits came back. In fact, I worked at a company where drinking was very, very much part of the culture. And I started drinking with them because, you know, just a, you know, it was, it was there. And, you know, somebody would pass me something that looked like Coke and it turned out to be rum and Coke. And the moment that I had that, I said, well, I've blown it now because, you know, that guilt set in. And so I said, I've blown it now. So let's go ahead and enjoy it. And so I get absolutely hammered over and over again. And this happened mm. over a very short period of time, but I couldn't stop. And so I went to the bishop and I talked to him and there was nothing that he could offer me other than, you know, you can't take the sacrament and, you know, you need to, you need to, you know, you need to get better. And, and then I tried the other side of the aisle where I went to AA for a bit and they talked to me about, you know, having, recognizing that you're powerless and recognizing that there is a power greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity and I kind of turned you know, at one moment to the idea that maybe Jesus Christ can redeem me of this. And I prayed fervently. And at, at the moment that I prayed, I went to a conference where I was going to be away. And that was where, you know, you could really, you know, have a lot of stress and pressure to, you know, misbehave. Because people that are on the road that are Mormon, typically, you know, there's, there's a lot of chances that people have to, you know, drink and do things that they wouldn't do at home. And I was trying to be sober. And at that moment that I had this spiritual experience so profound, so powerful, that I never had since then a desire to drink or to get drunk again. And I realized at that point in time that my sins had been redeemed not by me, but by a power greater than myself. And I choose to call that power Jesus Christ. And I, and I, and I to this day, I find it very deep to, to consider that relationship because as I went on that journey, you know, in my life after that, I recognize that, you know, the power of somebody, and I can call him Jesus Christ, I can call him Krishna, I can call him Buddha, whatever else like that. I can recognize that there's a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity. And I, I, I didn't stay with the AA program really for a long time, but it did tell me that there was more out there than just the one true church. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying the church is wrong at all, but I, I think that the only tool that the church had for my addiction was punishment. And that was really, really the problem that I had. I didn't need punishment. I, I had parents that, that did that very well when I was younger, not, not abusively. Right. But I mean, you know, I, I didn't need the parent model in my religion. I needed the loving Savior. And I found him personally but I didn't find him at church. And that's where I started a new journey. 
And I started trying to, I, I went to Catholicism. I mean, I still stay active in the church, but I went to Catholicism. I, I tried born again Christianity. And then one day I was sitting out in Colorado with a bunch of colleagues and somebody passed somebody else a copy of uh, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching. And as I'm reading this, I remember distinctly where I was sitting. I, I, I'm sitting in a restaurant near the old Stapleton Airport looking west towards the mountains. I mean, the visuals of this scene to me are as clear today as they were then. And I was reading this book about the ideal type of leader that doesn't try to prop himself up. In fact, the ideal leader is one that no, nobody knows about. And the best, the next is the one that they love. And the next is the one they fear. And the, the last is the one they despise. And if you don't trust others, they fail to trust you. And when the master does his work and success is achieved, all the people say they've done it by themselves naturally. And I read words like that. That's chapter 17 of Lao Tzu. And I said, this, this hit me. With, with with just like, this is, this is learning I've never seen in the church. These are things that I can really use day by day. This is a powerful teaching. And that was 1993. And from then I, I learned classical Chinese so that I could understand these texts. And I went on a journey into a philosophical Taoism. And, and I came to understand what the Asian mind thought. And then one time, when I'm translating some of the text, I, I, I translated the line says, in the government of the master, he, um, he empties the mind and provides health to the navel. He strengthens, uh, he, uh, he weakens the will and provides marrow to the bones. And I'm reading mm. these words in an ancient Chinese text that say health in the navel, marrow in the bones. And suddenly I realized something really important, that somewhere along the line, God is speaking to all of his people. He speaks through the great texts of the world. And, you know, what really, really hits me strongly on this is I, I read that same thing in the Book of Mormon in, in, in 2 Nephi 29, where, where Joseph Smith, I think, you know, my personal testimony is Joseph Smith was completely inspired to come up with this, but he came up with it. But he says, I speak to the Jews and they shall write it. I shall speak to the lost tribes of Israel and they shall write it. And I still shall speak to all the nations of the world and they shall write it. And that was, you know, in theory written in, in about, you know, the 5th century, 6th century BC. Well, that's the same time that Confucius lived, that Lao Tzu lived, that Buddha lived, that the people who wrote the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita lived, that Pythagoras lived. All of a sudden around the world during this really important period, people are writing divine truth from a presence that is universal and everywhere. And this was transforming to my faith because I realized that, yes, the church is true to a point, but so is Buddhism, so is Taoism, so is Catholicism. Everything has this wonderfully holographic truth that when we merge it together and we find this divine truth within it, What's really exciting is that we all have it among us. And when we can speak in, in groups like a thoughtful faith, we can start building our, our faith together, not, not based upon dogma, not based upon, you know, beliefs that are just, you know, conscribed to us and the testimony glove and the five things that we've got to declare. But we can find out that there's this divine presence that's everywhere and universal. And when we listen to it, we can be transformed by it. That's why I'm on a faith journey, and that's that's where the faith journey is, has taken me. But there's one aspect of this faith journey where I think it turned it turned much harder for me. 
as I grew up and all my children grew up, uh, one of my children uh, came out to me as gay after years of being suicidal. She went to BYU. She was a great student, but she was always very, very suicidal. And it got worse and worse in her senior year. She went to London. She came back. She applied to eight literature schools for her graduate degree, and she had planned to uh, commit suicide in the mode of uh, uh, Virginia Woolf if she didn't get accepted, and she didn't get accepted. Well, after she, we got through all that, she came out as being gay and, and started living you know, with a gay partner. And from that moment on, this is 10 years ago, she's not been suicidal in the least. She's lived an okay life. I don't like that. I don't like that she smokes and she drinks and she does all the things and she's anti-church. But, but you know, she is my daughter and I love her deeply and she's most like me in intellect and, you know, sort of the way that we think. And how can I possibly not wish for the very best for her? And then in 2003 through 2008, I started watching the church develop a sort of a culture around the idea that we're going to really go out after this political position of, of you know, going against gays. And, and morally, at one point at, in, in 2008, I was a ward mission leader, and I was doing fantastic as a ward mission leader, really enjoyed it. I recognized that as, as, as kind of a faithful non-believer, I was, and I say that, and I'll explain that in a minute, that a ward mission leader is an ironic calling. But we had, we had a wonderful year where we brought a lot of people in that really stayed in the church. And the reason is I told them about church history. I told them about what they were getting into. And they still got baptized, and they were firm in their faith as a result. But, but at that same time in 2008, I, I, I suddenly realized that morally, if the church continues on this political position against gays, I cannot support it. Morally, to be silent in the face of aggression is to side with the aggressor. And I, and I feel very strongly, or I felt at the time very strongly, that I couldn't continue as a member of the church. And so what I did instead of, you know, I was chicken, you know, having a very devoted wife and, every, and a family that was believer except for my daughter and my youngest, who was the party animal. Um, she, I, I, I took a job and assignment in India for two years. It didn't know it was going to be two years, but it turned out that way. And it gave me a chance to travel on Sundays and avoid going to church. And it gave me a chance to practice Hinduism for two years. And I got very deep into that. And when I, when I came to the end of that period of time, I, I, I realized that between, there's another side of every religion and that's the religion of control. And Hinduism has it, Buddhism has it, Taoism has it. While there's all this excitement in all these religions, every religion wants to control. And that was very disappointing to me. And, and at the same time, after two years where my wife didn't want to come with me to India, I almost lost my family. And so I came back and I decided in, in, the, in October 2011 that, okay, I'm going to make this church work for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out how I'm going to do it. And I'm sitting in the first meeting, you know, first high priest group where I'm, I'm sitting there and they're talking about the signs of the second coming. And, and the teacher wanted everybody to come up with a sign. And there's like 20 people in the room and I was in the middle. And by the time it got to me, I said, you know, guys, I can't do this. I can't believe this. This is not this stuff about second coming is just a way to scare people. This is not real. You know, and wow. <laughs> it was and the next day or that evening. 
I contacted Mormon Stories and John DeLynn and I said, you know, let's 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 work on this because I I'm I'm not making this work. And I I started posting on New Order Mormon and and Stay LDS and 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 I talked at length with John DeLynn then. You know, and I, I got to say that he helped me find a way to 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 see faith in the church, not as a belief. Belief is kind of the leading to certainty, whereas faith is the recognition that you really don't know and that you're trying to sort it out together. And if we really understand faith, a thoughtful faith, I think that that's the right formula because we're all humans just trying to make it work. And so since then, I've been participating pretty much trying to help people find that thoughtful faith. And I think that when John asked me to you know, co-moderate uh, a thoughtful faith, it's given me an opportunity to to really touch people's lives, and we've seen some real differences. We've seen people fall out. We've seen some bitterness. But I really do feel committed, at least until this last few weeks, you know, to, you know, the church. I'll come back. I mean, the the last few weeks have been the issues with the excommunications and and the threat towards John DeLynn, because, who I deeply love and care for. I know he's human, but you know, that's 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 always caused me to question. But. I also recognize that we as human need, beings need faith. We need each other. We need a place where we can support each other. And as long as, you know, I almost say that the church is true from the ward on down. I have a great ward with great leaders and great people that work together. And we love each other. And we have friendships that are there. And what gets in the way is dogma. And if we can find a way to start sharing a thoughtful faith with people, we can help each other thrive and find their way through this journey in this life. And that's how I feel. That's why I'm feeling very, very strongly about, you know, working with Gina and with you, Dan, and with, uh, with Sarah in helping, you know, bring a Thoughtful Faith podcast back to life and to really having an engagement on, on how we can talk about these issues. Well, thank you, Mark. In some ways, that was like a... A typical a thoughtful faith episode where you would have been the person that we interview. I didn't really answer you very many questions, but boy, you, you told a compelling story and we really got a feel for you. Is there anything else that you'd want to share in terms of like uh, framing that helps you? Is there something within Mormonism or anything like that that makes you like, you know, obviously you've chosen to stay within it. Sounds like a bit because of family reasons and things like this, but also you have, you have these wider perspectives, but they seem to have come a little bit from outside, you know, your, your journey outside Mormonism. Are there particular like two or three things within Mormonism that just say, boom, you know, other than, you know, uh, second Nephi 29 that you did about God, you know, speaking through all the different ways and groups. I think I could probably find a dozen reasons why Mormonism is compelling for me. Cool. Uh, I think that truth, you know, I mean, I know that it, it, it seems like we don't care about truth, and our, our brethren seem to do a pretty fine job about finding ways to make truth not relevant. But, you know, not to speak negatively towards them, but truth needs to be the dominant factor in the church. That's a theory. That's what I choose to view the, the church as being, is that we shouldn't have to believe, and there's plenty of quotes for this, anything that isn't true. I think Alma 32 is a great test of truth. It very much replicates what Descartes tried to do when he decided to set aside all of his beliefs and reconstruct his faith, testing mm -hmm. his beliefs one by one. I think that's very powerful. I think that uh, you know when we speak of the plan of salvation, I don't know how much of it is true. 
But I think what it does teach us, even if it is mythological, is it teaches us an inherently positive view of humanity. We are of a divine nature. We are imbued with a light of Christ, and we have a, a resident God within us called the Holy Ghost. These principles, maybe I don't say them in the same way the church will say them, but I can anchor on these things as being really valuable ways to live. And to me, I can find within Mormonism almost uniquely a path that's beautiful. Now, today I was at a Catholic funeral, and I found that equally beautiful. And I went to the priest, crossed my you know arms across my chest and got a blessing. I thought it was wonderful. So I'm kind of a I kind of like religion because I like the ritual. I like the blessing. I like the idea that we can love each other in certain ways. I don't like the dogma, but I can choose what I want to have faith in, and I will have that faith regardless of what the brethren say. Super, super. And one thing uh, for any listeners here, Mark has agreed to be on my podcast to kind of talk. uh, I'm doing a new series about encounters with other religions and how they kind of cross fertilize with Mormonism. And Mark and somebody else has agreed to be on one that I'll be doing with Taoism. So we'll be excited to to explore that part of your journey a bit more over there. Gina, were there any questions you had for Mark before we turn to you? No, I don't. I think that was thorough and thoroughly interesting. I feel really boring. <laughs> well, you live a very active, very public Mormon life, and you bring so many fun and not, uh, you know, okay, I'll say fun in the sense of I love it because it's always fresh and stuff, but yet a lot of the things you say are very serious, you know, issues, and it comes from your background as a professor of, uh, you know, it's pedagogy and and you know sort of a cultural studies kind of background. So would you yeah. tell us uh, your Mormon journey and and then you know get us into you know the blog that you do and and just kind of all the stuff. So uh, similar to Mark, I'll, I'll turn you loose. But if you pause long enough, I'm going to jump in with a question and get you back on course. Okay, cool. Oh, look, I don't have a prestigious um, church pedigree at all by any standards. Um, my grandfather on my father's side joined the church, I think, in the 1940s or 1950s, up in a little East Coast town um, in New Zealand. I'm from New Zealand, by the way. I live in Christchurch, which is in the South Island. Uh, but in an East Coast, North Island town called Huruera, um, my grandfather um, met the missionaries and joined the church. Um, I think his, his second wife, um, my grandmother, was a member at the time. So they joined and they produced a prodigious, prodigious uh, number of children, um, 21. I think he and his first wife who passed away and my grandmother. And my father was part of um, a, a migration of young Maori men um, into cities. And there he, I actually think, no, he was married. He went down um, to Invercargill, which is right at the um, bum of the South Island, Um and um, he married and had three children, and then he left his wife and he met my mother and um, got her pregnant, and she was a young teenager. So um, aside from giving her his seed, he also... <laughs> and is that seed you? <laughs> that seed was Th- me. This was this moment, okay. That one little aggressive gamete was me. Um, <laughs> and um, my mother um, uh, was introduced to the church through him as they were living together. I think she was all of 18. And when she got pregnant, um, they they broke up. Um, and so she was this pregnant woman and a pregnant teenager in a burgeoning branch of the church in Christchurch, New Zealand, um, during the nineteen sixties. Um, and I just 
uh, yeah, I saw some pictures of her because um, I'm actually the stake assistant, a very, very bad stake assistant historian, I might add. But somebody handed over some pic- pictures um, and there she was pregnant with me at this, state, at this district relief society event. And I thought it was just, just lovely. But she was really, really embraced in the LDS community. And I was born into, into the Christchurch L- um, Mormon community. And I just had a wonderful, wonderful life growing up amongst, you know, um, all of these people who I've seen, you know, grow old and pass on on, you know, there are faces that I know here who I've known all of my life. And so in that respect, it's like my, my LDS community, my local community has always been a place of extraordinary comfort and beauty for me. So so there were just like really warm memories. And then my mother, because, you know, um, she was a little bit desperate, married um, a horrible man. Oh, he's still alive, but he'll never listen to this. I don't care. Um, <laughs> and he's Catholic. Um, he was Catholic, but not that that was an issue, but that he was very, very strident um, about her not being Catholic. I don't know why they got married. Oh, no, he got her pregnant too. Um, that's why they got married. Um, and um, he stopped us going to church from when I was about nine or ten. And then about, um, and, you know, that was just, um, it was it was a real um, heartache for me not to be part of the community. Um, and so at age 16, and I'd sort of, you know, gone a bit wild quite young and um, broke many a rule. Um, and at age 16, I woke up one morning and, and just as Mark had like a profound experience, like words that just sort of came to me and seared my soul, the words were, it's time for you to go back to church. And I put, uh, and the next Sunday I put on my gears, my nice gears, and away I went and that was it. And I've never not been at church. Um, and so back at church, I was sort of immediately embraced once again into this Mormon community that I'd left for seven years. With so much love, I was informed, I had to leave home because my stepfather made it very, very difficult for me. Um, and I was informally adopted by the state president's family, um, a family that I'd grown up with um, and had known for many years. Um, and um, and I, you know, I suppose as a teenager, I was really in this in this wonderful home full of teenagers um, and church and general authorities, and you know, it was uh, we had a wonderful life. Um, but I was introduced to these two kinds of Mormonism. I my my foster adopted father um david was very liberal he was a a university professor a historian well he still is a historian um but he was a subscriber to dialogue and sunstone and anything that came out from eugene england he had the bookshelves were filled with you know this um you know fawn brody i mean just just anything um and and i just threw myself into reading it all and loved it all absolutely loved it all on the other side was my wonderful foster mother who was very very conservative she'd had this stock phrase whereby she evaluated people based upon their level of their level of um testimony um, and she would say, this person is not fully converted or this person is fully converted and used to rile my, um, my, my adopted father up. So there was a storm brewing there. Um, so, um, and then I, and then I acquired a boyfriend, um, who was the mission president's son. And I was introduced into a very, 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 very conservative Mormon life. These were, these were, 
um, the very elite, if I have to use that word, church Mormon aristocracy. Um, and so I was sort of caught in this sort of maelstrom of different positionings around Mormonism. Um, he went off on his mission and on a rebound I married somebody I should never have married and a couple of years later he became the bishop. He was called by Elder Worthland to be the bishop of the ward. I don't know why we got married, Dan. I really don't. We were astrologically completely incompatible. Um, Astro- and I- were you checking I- your charts for that? Is that what you mean or are you just well- talking? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> After we broke up, astrology explained it all. A Leo never marry a Scorpio but anyway there you have it so he had an affair as a as a, as a young bishop and look at, I mean you know we hadn't had any children and we were only like three years into a marriage but it, you know as you can you know you know as anybody who's been through the experience will know that how deeply deeply painful it can be um now, having... now did, did you finish the story of the boyfriend who from the elite or you kind of moved on to something else. I know you've shared it a little bit pieces and pieces in some Mormon matters. Do you want to share that today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had, um, you know, it was it was that first love encounter. It's very uh, evocative and compelling and all-consuming. Um, and so I was participated in this sort of this family that was very very rigid. Um. Loving and very nice, but it was kind of a rigidity to it. And, and, and as somebody who had made mistakes, you know, as a young teenager, I always got the impression that I wasn't quite as, you know, as spotless as they would have liked for their dear boy. Right. Um, and and uh, you were a person of color and they weren't, oh, right? I did not tick any boxes. I mean, Mormon was the only box that I ticked. I wasn't, I wasn't North American and I wasn't, um, you know, I was brown and I had, you know, I didn't have a pedigree and, you know. Um, so, I mean, I think there was a kind of a violence to all of that. I, and I know it wasn't intended, but there was a sort of a, you know, just an awful um, sense of no matter what I did out of my own, you know, my own testimony or out of my own sense of, of righteousness or faith, I would never meet, you know, uh, I would never um, measure up. Yes. And actually, I have to say, I have to say, actually, that was a pretty, um, I mean, we, we sort of informally got engaged and announced to the parents that, you know, I was I was going to wait for him and, you know, they were just about, I think they just about had heart attacks right there and then. Um, I look back at that and with amusement, but... But I think it was actually a very, um, I think there may have, may have been some divine intervention in us not actually getting together eventually. This is, when I say very, very conservative, I missed out about 20 cons- uh, varies. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I kind of, I, I, I uh, you know, evaded that life. I don't okay. know how it's about Okay. Yeah. And so when you broke up, then you it was pretty quickly after was this rebound into this marriage that you were telling us wasn't a oh, good we one. We didn't actually match. broke up. I just got married, then we broke up. Oh, <laughs> interesting. I was but it, so Okay, it, it was about because of those feelings of, you know, this isn't going to work out ultimately, and so you just kind of jumped into this other relationship while you were still with this guy. Did you break his heart? Uh, I think I did. Yeah, I got kind of like a eleventh hour pleading not to not to marry this mm-hmm. uh, this, mm-hmm. this next chap. 
Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, you're stupid. You're so stupid when you're, when you're 18 and 19. I don't know what yeah. I was thinking. But anyway, so um, I don't know. I very quickly got married to this, this um, a, 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 another young chap. Um, who was um, made a bishop very early on, as I said before. And then three years into our marriage, he has an affair. Um, and that ended our marriage, obviously. And I think I was a bit relieved, actually, to be honest, if he's yeah. listening. I, if he's listening, Richard, I was really a little bit relieved. But having said that, you know, having that period in New Zealand, you have to be separated for two years um, after a divorce before you can, after a separation before you can be divorced. <laughs> I thought it was actually a really important time for me because I was unshackled to any man and um, the way they had handled it at church was just devastating. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second. And it just it just meant that that two-year period was me and God um, and talking. Um, and so he, he um, had, an uh, as I say, he had an affair with another woman in the ward while he was the bishop, and they wouldn't release him for three months. So for three months, he was still my bishop, and um, he would sort of make googly eyes at his new girlfriend, and um, and I'm sitting there going, what on earth is this organisation that yeah. they could put up with this? It was just it was just unbelievable. But I kind of got word from the state president that what they were trying to do was work with him so that he would, uh, you know, stay faithful in the church, that the area authority, I think it was Ronald Pullman at the time, had made a call to say, no, don't take him into, don't discipline him. Um, he's too valuable for us to lose, et cetera, et cetera. And all the while I have to process this constant parade of infidelity um, at church on a Sunday. It was handled so badly, and that was the first inklings that I got that women are treated so, uh, you know, so, so awfully, terribly. Um, in situations of divorce, um, when you've got a, a, a religious hierarchy who are only men dealing with their brothers, um, they tend to be a little um, less uh, punitive. That was my feeling, anyway. Yeah. So, um, so I think, but what it did that experience, and I, and you know, I say now that I wouldn't change that experience, that divorce experience, for anything, because I think. It helped me understand God in new and different and uninstitutional ways. And I had profound and transcendent experiences um, during that period of separation. Um, and one of them being an absolute clear revelation as to the type of person that I would marry next. Um, I had thought, oh, um, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, bounce and leave Christchurch and go somewhere else. But a, a young man had gone on his mission just before Nate, um, Richard and I had broken up, and um, and this is Nathan, um, and he came back and he was absolutely everything that my my um, my dream had, um, you know, evoked in me. Um, so, yeah, so he kind of basically bailed around and said, I need to marry you. I know I need to marry you. And we would not dated. Um, anyway, that's a whole different story. But anyway, wow. so that's... Um, so that's kind of, um, but he, he himself, he has, is very conservative as well. And he has watched the evolution of these sort of strands of faith sort of mix and unravel. And, um, I think he's, he's watched with bated breath. He's been very, very patient and very kind, 
um, aside from the fact that he's um, legendary in his conservativeness. <laughs> so, huh. um, yeah, it's just sort of one of the, I was kind of, you know, um, it's, I, you know, and I think if, if, it, if it hadn't been for him, I think I may have bailed. Um, in the last five years, it's been the most difficult. Um, and I'm not quite sure what started that. A terrible ward. We went up north, up to the North Island and lived in an awful, awful ward. Um, and with, you know, maybe the shining light of a couple of people, but it was punitive and it was judgmental and awful. Um, and I thought at that point, this is, why would I subject myself to this? But he's been very kind in, in, in anchoring me to um, a faith that I actually do have a huge amounts of affection for and reminding me of that, that this is my language, these are my people, and, um, and I, you know, I don't know what I would be without my, my, my um, you know, my Mormonism. Yeah, yeah. And I know you have, is it four boys? Six. Six boys, that's what it is. Yeah, Six boys one. and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, oh, we have we have an eldest, our eldest is 20, um, and then we adopted our next one, and then we fostered another four boys, okay. um, and they have been with us for, you know, eight years now. So, oh. yeah, so it's a big and rambling family. Wonderful. And, okay, so then uh, education, at what point were you pursuing your advanced degrees and, and ended up as a professor the way you are? Oh, um, hmm. I qualified as a secondary school teacher and I taught secondary school for a little bit. Um, and then I decided I would go back and do some post-grad, I think uh, around the end of turn of, the, um, turn of the century, and then embarked on a PhD. And then we decided we were going to go, actually, we just needed to get out. So we went to Taiwan and we lived in Taiwan for four years. Um, and then I came back in 2004 to adopt Finn, who's our, who's our second. Um, and... Within a year, I was enrolled in my PhD again, and I, I graduated. I think I submitted. In New Zealand, we do PhDs differently. It's just by thesis alone, so it's quite a substantial piece of work. Um, and I, I finished in 2009 and was offered a position here at the University of Canterbury. So my, my thesis was in, was in journalism, but it was it was one of those sort of intersectional sort of interdisciplinary theses where I use discourse analysis and cultural and racial analysis and, you know, uh, critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera. But I find myself now in the College of Education. Yeah. And it, it's it's obviously sits you in a situation where you're one of the most profound readers of texts that I know. You have just this wonderful uh, sense of so many dynamics that just I miss. <laughs> and I'm, and I, I'm so grateful whenever you come on my podcast Tell me a little bit about, you know, some of the insights from your, and and I guess, when did you start Kiwi Mormon, which is your blog that often, you know, will have sort of these critiques, you know, and these, uh, these perspectives on it. Uh, what are some of the things that, you know, trouble you the most about Mormonism as well as, you know, anything from your education that helps you have hope as well? Um, oh, well, um, I started Kiwi Mormon about two and a half years ago. I, th I could see that Americans were having this wonderful conversation. It was really robust, but I was just tearing my hair out thinking, can you not see that this is your story? It's not entirely the whole story and that Mormonism is bigger than America. Um, 
So that's why I started it. Um, but, you know, it's been, you know, if, you know, ironically, it's mostly Americans that read it, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're grateful for the education. Yeah. yeah, I think about a thousand New Zealanders might read it. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I suppose in terms of the, the, the intersections between my, my scholarship and, you know, my faith, um, I mean, I, I mean, there, I, I suppose there is, an, there are a number of ways that you can approach the question of religion and faith in general. Um, you know, so strictly speaking, sociologists would look at look at it in terms of either a conflict approach. You know, what's going on? What are the tensions and things there? Um, they could look at it in terms of language. You know, how is language being wrestled over? You know, something like a simple word like priesthood, for instance, has just so many renderings and does so much kind of work. Yeah, so much, you know, there's so much tension around one word. So, or you could look at it in terms of the way the organisation is, um, you know, works and, and whose interests it works in terms of governance and ideology and um, discourse. Um, and I suppose out of all of that, you know, if I could sum it up, I have no particular affection for the institution um, and I feel quite cynical about it because I don't see it as necessarily, um, it's not divine to me, it's just a corporation and it's an American corporation um, and it's, it's you know, just, you know, pregnant with these kind of, these corporate neoliberal ideals. Um, and so I don't feel required to believe in it. And as a New Zealander, it's, it's much easier to take that step back and say, what the hey? Um, you know, how, I mean, for instance, I, I suppose one of the most profound experiences um, that really rattled me was um, Iraq. Um, and when President Hinckley stood up in a, I can't remember what session of conference, October 2002, maybe. Um, 2003. Does anyone remember what that was? He stood and he said, I think we should, uh, we've just got word that um, US uh, forces have gone into Afghanistan and I think we should support the president. I thought, who, was, who is he talking to? That was a little earlier, but Iraq, you know, the church's position on Iraq was, was actually also very supportive, whereas the previous year, Russell Nelson talked about yeah. uh, 2002, he, he, he came up with a talk that sort of, you know, said that we shouldn't go to war unless there was real cause. And, and, and while Afghanistan might have considered to be cause, the Iraq thing must have really affected you. Oh, it was horrific. It was horrific. Because we were living in an expatriate community where there were Americans and there were New Zealanders, all of the New Zealanders, and everybody gathered at our house, at, in our apartment to watch the news coverage. And it was in the middle of the night and we were just, sh and they were, you know, the, the Americans were weeping. Um, and just sort of clinging to each other. I mean, it's an awful, awful thing, and it should not have happened. But the New Zealanders were saying, oh, we don't know why you're so puzzled. Surely you saw this coming. And that for them, it was an absolute insult that we had, you know, and, and so it created this huge division. Um, and when, when President Hinckley said what he did, I was just mortified. I was devastated because I don't believe there was anything divine or sanctioned or even right about what happened. But, I mean, the point was, of course, the divisions that it created in Mormonism, um, you know, internationally. So you had the American Mormons kind of having this conversation and just sort of escalating their, their support of the war and non-Americans going, what the heck? 
how right. you know am, am I now required because I belong to an American church to support this act you know and in all good conscience I can't so yeah tough so, tough yeah when our politics came out and said you're either for me or against me mm. You know, the, in, in 2003, uh, President Hinckley gave a, a talk about loyalty, and he used exactly the same line that President Bush did two years earlier. That was a real that was a real eye opener for me, and I yeah. can't imagine what you were thinking as you know as as a non American about that sort of parallelism and that sort of you know sort of uh, splitting and false dichotomy that suddenly mm. you have to choose sides on something that is clearly clearly out of your conscience. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I said, was that experience, I think that really escalated um, my faith crisis back then. It was 9-11. Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of why I wanted to start to start writing and saying, you know, American Mormonism is its own, it's its own brand. It's its right. own form. It's its own culture. And it doesn't translate well to us out, you know, elsewhere. And there's all sorts of things that have been conflated or added onto American Mormonism that have no place, no place in a church, in a religious institution or an organization that that seeks to, um, you know, to spiritually embolden and empower people. It's It's got no no place whatsoever, so I reject it completely. Out of yeah, hand. yeah. I had you on uh, Mormon Matters. We talked about the pioneer tracks and how they're trying to, you know, reenact certain things like that. But most recently you've been pretty out front about Elder Oaks's visit oh, and you. the stuff that he shared there. Do you feel like going into that now? Oh, I suppose this was... You know, New Zealand um, passed the um, Marriage Amendment Bill in 2000, oh, last year, in la last August, and it was just wonderful. Like a, a wonderful, um, you know, a, a leading up to it, it was very attenuated and, and um, but, you know, New, Ze New Zealand is a small enough country where we can, um, where, uh, I suppose, ideologies or certain practices and the public service can kind of translate very quickly out to you know in, into institutions and into a cultural dialogue and um same gender marriage was as part of the kind of inclusive conversation that we're having in new zealand you know i'm in education we talk about inclusivity so um and all of that which um creates exclusive environments and how poor and you know how, how culturally poor and poverty stricken um exclusive environments can be and, and violent um, they, they can be um, for those who don't fit um, and so when the same gender marriage bill was passed you know it kind of did with with you know kind of grace and you know and it was it was there and and everybody just has just sort of like bedded down with it you know it's fine um, this is a matter for politicians to work out as far as we're concerned um, and when um, Elder Oaks gave his appalling talk at the regional conference. I'm not supposed to say this um, because I've been asked not to say these sorts of things. I don't. Oh use... well, back off. <laughs> I don't use no. Like I stand by it. I stand by it because it was appalling and it was uncalled for and it was completely unnecessary in a New Zealand context. And there seemed to have been no, um, no consideration for what those kind of statements would mean for New Zealanders. It was just one of his, you know, it was just, you know, a, a form sort of speech, which I think he may have given elsewhere. And it was, it was just, was mind-boggling. 
But, you know, I mean, I know how I felt about it, but I thought I would just ask ordinary. And on that particular blog, I would ask ordinary Mormons, you know, in my community how they felt about it. Um, and I didn't lead them. I just said, how did you feel about it? So I had somebody who was about to go on a mission, somebody in the state presidency, somebody who was a Relief Society president, someone on a bishopric. Um, and they gave, you know, similar feelings of bewilderment. So, yeah, that was yeah. that. For him, it's such a moral issue, and moral issues should transcend any cultures and across the grounds. That I can see him being uh, pretty ignorant there, but I, I know that it was very, very upsetting, you know, mm. to you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just tough stuff. So, on a well, brighter note, though, Dan, please. Like, I just want to conclude by saying that Mormonism is is me. It's my language. Um, Mormons are my community, and I'm always caught between holding too tightly to the to to, to my community, um, and holding and trying to um, hold on to God at the same time. Um, so I feel that that I feel that um, God in my community. I feel sometimes, most of the times, I feel God in my community, but but at the moment, it feels a little bit more tentative. That uh, and. The, Largely because I can't feel proud of our church at the moment. I think some, it's, it just does too much harm sometimes. So, you know, you can see that you know, hopefully I'm communicating in a rambly sort of way the, that tension um, between a love for my community and shame in my community um, right. at the moment. So, yeah, it's uneasy, but I'm okay with uneasy. It's fine. It's uncomfortable. It's uneasy. I, don't, I feel less certain. I feel I'd like I'm, you know, swimming in paradox um but but on the same hand by the same um token i feel that my faith journey feels broader more agentic and spiritually satisfying as i, I wrestle with all of these things i don't want the answers mm -hmm. I just, nice I, yeah. yeah nice and uh just one clarification so you've you've kind of talked about the institution and having no love for it and you know it feels like a you know administrative bureaucracy and it's it's just doing its thing how and then now you've also talked about certain leaders as you know basically you know not really getting it in terms of you know war and uh, same sex marriage and things like this yeah. how do you how do you still view prophets, apostles uh, in some sort of called way, some sort of God-approved way, even when you completely disagree with some of the things they do? Oh, put me on the spot. What is it? Oh, sorry. And Mark can jump in on this one too, if, if he'd like. <laughs> do you know, um, it's really hard to answer because when I'm asked that, you know, you know, do I sustain the um, the president of the church, I, I, I always say yes, but, you know, and in my head I'm saying I sustain anybody. I absolutely sustain anybody to exercise spiritual gifts. I sustain nice. anybody who's going to witness about Christ, absolutely. So that's the way I answer it. And I, and I don't think that there is any carte blanche statement that anybody can can make without any degree of dissonance when they say I absolutely believe in the hierarchy. Um, and I believe in the brethren. I mean, what sort of statement is that to make? You know, who are you privileging here, Jesus or, you know, man? Right, I, right, yeah. right. I always feel very fortunate that they don't ask the question, believe in any of the Temple Recommend interviews, but rather, mm -hmm. do you have faith Sustain. in something? And, and uh -huh. if you understand faith as being, you know, that which we trust with uh, without certainty, 
you know, to me, uh, the church markets certainty, certainty about about the future, certainty in in terms of you know where we came from, where we are, and where we're going, certainty in in forms of things like second anointings and other things like that. That seems to be like the whole idea is that the church markets in certainty, and yet you know, Gina, you were talking about how in in your in your position. You're not certain. In fact, certainty is no longer part of your equation of faith. And I think that's where faith really starts to matter. And <laughs> when we realize that the church is simply a vehicle or a conveyor of faith, a place where we can struggle together as humans, then maybe it takes a different view than, you know, the strict hierarchy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree, Mark. Yeah. But, it, you know, I think it's unsettling, though. I think a lot of people and, you know, I mean, you and I both um, deal with people who um, are transitioning away from that place of certainty. Um, and sometimes they resolve it by actually distancing themselves. And I think that's, sometimes I think that's really unfortunate because it doesn't, I think our, our, our um, discourse of uncertainty, I mean, in many respects, I think we are just a, a very, very postmodern religion. Um, and um, but, uh, I just think that we need to um, talk more and embrace that, that the uncomfortableness of, of our lack of certainty um, and the, the paradox and the contradiction. I think that's okay. Is that not part of our human experience and certainly part of our spiritual experience? I mean, what is a spiritual experience if all you, you're dealing with is certainty? It, doesn't, it ceases to be um, um, a spiritual experience, as far as I can tell. Uh, yeah, I think the language certainly changes when we, th you know, we we use certain terms. We say things like "I know," uh, and 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 yet that's justified because we see the term from Job, "I know that my redeemer liveth." And so, why should we say "I believe" when we can say "I know"? And 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 yet, from an epistemological point of view, there's no justified uh, belief there. There's no there's no evidence. Mm -hmm. And and, and in, in making that certainty, it's sort of like children. And what really is contemptuous to me are things like the testimony glove, and that and that's that robs a child from what do you really believe, and why do you believe it? And if you can, and if you help people come back away from belief a little bit and say, there's things that we can know, and if it's true, we ought to accept it, whether it's evolution, whether it's the lack of historicity of the Book of Mormon. If these things are the facts, then let's accept the facts. If something isn't true, let's reject it. But there's this wide area of space in the middle that we simply don't know. And, you know, like Russell's teapot, there are some things that are very, very unlikely that we might as well put into the category. We're not going to believe that. But because that middle ground is... And I kind of say that what we are is we are residents of a middle ground, a middle way that the church wants to say doesn't exist. But it does. All of us are cafeteria Mormons in some way. All of us are living in the gray zone between certainty and, 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 and absolute knowing nothing. And so when we realize that the real place for faith is in that middle ground, then as we start constructing real faith, not belief in the false, but real faith, which recognizes the lack of certainty, we start building that strength that, you know, somebody can say, well, the book of Abraham is completely false. Yeah, I already know that. But the question is, is there anything in it that's worthwhile to me? I haven't found much in there, and that's just my opinion. But the point being is that we can find, we can find truth 
in a flower. We can try and find truth in any of God's creation, and we can find truth in, in all the great works of literature and all the great works of scripture and all the great things that people have said, but we recognize it's all mixed. It's, it's, not, it's not always going to be perfectly, uh, you know, how, how should we say it, perfectly that this is the truth and I've got the truth and I've got all the truth and you don't need anything but me. And that's the part that I find the most difficult to accept. Mm. Well, thank you. It is fun to hear you guys and to introduce you to this uh, Thoughtful Faith audience uh, to a stronger degree than they may have known you already beforehand. Let's, let's, uh, we're anticipating the, the relaunch of this very soon and you two will be heading up. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, you know, as you've been thinking about the types of people that you want to interview, uh, any particular angles, is there sort of a, uh, you know, I want to focus Gina on international church kind of issues, Mark, who, who are you going to, who are you thinking of interviewing and what are your goals? So why don't we switch back and go to Mark first with just some of his, uh, thoughts as he, he may be interviewing. And again, along with Sarah, who will continue to do interviews and like before with the thoughtful faith, we welcome listeners to propose people and perhaps, uh, as in the case of, that happened in the other one, uh, occasionally be guests hosts as well. So Mark, uh, start with you about your, your dreams for what's we're going to do with the thoughtful faith now. Well, I truly hope that we can galvanize the idea that that we can talk about people who are making it work for them. When I say it is whatever it means, it means the you know faith in the church, faith faith in one's own plan, but most importantly, finding integrity, finding authenticity in one's path. I think um, the way I look at it is the path has no destination. You know, I really liked a few years back when Dieter Uchtdorf said that we are all in the middle of our eternal lives. I thought it was a really fantastic talk. And when we realize that there is no such thing as being there, there's no end to our faith journey, then I'd like to talk to people as they're going through this journey and finding ways where they're making it work for them. And they're starting to realize some things that really work for them in the journey, whether that's, you know, an understanding of, of things that are beneficial, methods and techniques that they use to, to find productive value, joys that they find in the simplicities of the church. I don't think I'd like to f- focus so much on the, the negative aspects of our faith. Right. I do believe very firmly that there is there are, there's kind of like two very important processes in a faith journey. One is the deconstruction of our previously held beliefs and, and other things that are not based upon truth. And, and that's a very painful process. And until that's complete, it's very hard to reconstruct faith. But then once, once you've come to the point that, that you can let it all go and you start reconstructing, how you reconstruct and the joys that you find in it and the, and the ways that it starts edifying your life as you start working with people I had an experience with one of the uh, one of the people in the uh, in their forum, not to be named right now, but we had lunch together last week, and it was you know he lived in the Washington D.C. area with me, and uh, and we sat down, and you know there was a there was a bonding and a sense of love as we talked about, I mean it was just very magical, and if we can have interviews and other things where we can say, you know this is really working for me, this, whatever this is. And I'm not saying it's full faith in the church or belief or anything else like that, but I'm finding peace in my life. And in fact, I don't believe that our 
unorthodox way of looking at the church is a defective way of looking at the church, but I think it's a progressive way of progressing to the next level of understanding. And so I'd like to talk to people who have that kind of point of view, a very, you know, not, not a Pollyannish one, but one that builds upon that faith reconstruction and finds new ways and new joys as they, as they create a universalizing faith. Sounds great. Gina, first shot for you on uh, what you hope to do with your platform, this new platform here. Well, you know, I, I had a, I've had a series of um, very long and interesting interviews with my state president, who is absolutely fabulous. And one of the questions, one of the discussions that we had was how do you get, you know, in terms of his leadership, how do you get um, Orthodox Mormons and progressive Mormons on the same pew as each other? Um, so I'm really interested in pursuing that, um, that question with, um, you know, women, female leaders in the church and male leaders in the church or those who'd like to speak out um, about how they manage that, 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 you know, that kind of spiritual and ideological diversity. How do you manage diversity in your wards um, and your congregations? Um, and, and how do you honour people's faith journeys? You know, you know what, what, what would a ward look like that, that where everybody felt included? So there's that. But also, I mean, obviously I'd like to um, um, talk to international folk, um, people from the perimeters of the church, particularly in terms of the way um, they reconcile or will they answer the question, well, where does the church begin and America end? Nice. Um, a really important focus. I think that's, for me, that's a bit of a crusade, actually, to sort of start unraveling the church from America. And obviously, um, I've got a feminist bent as well, so um, I'd be really um, interested in talking um, to women who manage or have hope for a, a, a church that is able to transcend the patriarchy. So, yeah, I, hopefully... Um, you know, a number of really wonderful people lined up, so I'm very, very excited about introducing them to the rest of the world. But in, in, in saying that, you know, language is important, and I think what a thoughtful faith will do was will introduce people to another kind of a language, ways of expressing the way they feel but also managing situations. I mean, the same way that Joanna Brooks has been really important as a national voice um, on um, Mormonism, she she's given or, or offered a very um, uh, a very yeah, important kind of language for people to use to express who they are as Mormons, which is you know a little step away from the orthodoxy that they might have just assumed. So yeah, so that's me. Neat, neat. Okay, guys, just the next question then. You, you're going to head up this thing, and of course you're still going to fold in Sarah and things like this. What have you been thinking in terms of frequency for a thoughtful faith? Should people expect it a weekly podcast, uh, every two weeks, every three weeks? What are you guys thinking? Well, I think that every two weeks, or as, as, uh, as Gina might say, every fortnight would be a, would be a <laughs> great way to do it. So I, I think that if we do it every two weeks – and are, are, are regular with it so that we can yes, you know, yes be consistent. So like you would interview a person once a month, Mark, Gina once a month, and then you would release it every two weeks. And then, of course, Sarah Sarah would throw into that rotation and things like that as well. Well, that's exciting news, and we look forward to the consistency. And that that's the key. And I'll let you know, too, it's the key to fundraising. <laughs> When it when it comes time for adding to support is that people know that if they're going to um, vote with some of their dollars to be a supportive thing, uh, the consistency is a, is a key. So I'm I'm thrilled that you guys are are committing to that. 
what are what are you guys thinking and hoping in terms of fundraising is is this uh something that you that you want to do an appeal each time for for the sport well i think it's absolutely important to have fundraising and and it, one it actually does cost money to host these things and to, and 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 to put them on it takes equipment it takes other things it also demonstrates value on the part of people that are that are doing this um from my perspective fundraising you know creates a community of commitment you know yes. and we're not asking for a lot but i am you know totally behind the open stories foundation and the other other projects that we have and you know to me it's it, it's it's a journey together and i think that keeping that critical mass together and keeping this doorway open so that people always have the ability to um, you know, to find a place that they can safely talk about faith issues and find a navigated path wherever they want to take it is really important to me. That's why I think that fundraising should be there. Gina? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think that's great. I'm not going to give up my day job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But yeah, it is it is a thing, and I, I'll tell you, Mark, the the way it does feel to me when I receive money for Mormon Matters and things like that is, it is just that neat commitment. I feel a connection with that uh, supporter. I, uh, you know, and and I and I I sense and I hope and I always want the people who do donate, donate to me to be to be something where they they are saying this is valuable in my life and it isn't a burden to them it isn't like a guilt trip or something like that and so I think the way you phrased it was just was just perfect so mm-hmm. agreed yeah I'm excited. A Thoughtful Faith is relaunching. This will be the first one of the relaunch. And we'll just say that two weeks after we put this up, watch <laughs> like clockwork for uh, for some new Thoughtful Faith under the direction of Gina and Mark. So thank you, you guys. Well, thank you, Dan. And thank you, Gina. This has been really, really a lot of fun to have this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dan and Mark. You bet. Good night, guys. Thank you for listening to a Thoughtful Faith podcast. Join us in discussing this podcast at athoughtfulfaith.org or on the same-named Facebook group. We thank Chellen Hunt for graciously donating the music for this podcast.